just a quick question around how, how is uh, how is the practice of con continuous mindful awareness going for you? Does anybody have any comments or questions about that? Yes. I want to share. Um, and yesterday, after Tradasa said something about silence, and partly, <laughs> I just realized, I just want to want to talk. Then, um, last night, the meditation was, no, um, I don't know how to say. Until today, uh, no, last night, then partly, everything just kind of motion before I kind of pretend I see that should be slow. But yesterday, the first time, I just truly be really slow. Even nobody see me, I still kind of slow. <laughs> and even from the, the bathroom to take shower, I think maybe it's too slow. <laughs> but, um, and I really, um, because yesterday, I think Shuradasa meeting read my mind, and my mind is kind of very, um, up and down and I cannot sit and I just don't know how. And then Chiradasa and the Dhamma talk just say about <laughs> that kind of words. So I just so touched. And and until today I I just always before the uh, interview I always keep thinking, what should I ask Chiradasa? How should I use that fifteen minutes? Then I even write down a question. But today when the interview with Chiradasa I don't even want to talk, but he just asked me, how are you? And I just said, can we just sit for 15 minutes? And I sit 15 minutes with him. And that was just, I think the first time for meditation, I really realized, just watch the breathing, the inhale, and, and I don't even have a good position. I just lay down like that, and I, I don't know. And, and the afternoon, I think my mind is a little bit kind of, Kind of um, not like yesterday, but today, uh, tonight, after I take shower, and I just feel a little bit bad, like yeah. So I just want to share. And tomorrow the interview, I still want to just so I don't want to talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Anyone else?
that, that is mindful. The distraction is when you start <coughs> thinking or, or your mind is moving from one thing to another uh, on its own, and that's, that's what we would want to correct. But what you're describing is mindful. Somebody else was saying that, you know, they, they said, I think I know what, <coughs> I think I know how to practice mindfulness when I'm doing other things, but I'm not sure, and could you explain it a little more clearly? And I said, it's a lot like what happens when we listen to music. When you listen to music, if you're really listening to music, I mean, you're not thinking about anything else. You're just listening to the music. And you're not thinking about the notes that you already heard. You're listening to the notes that you're hearing right now. And you're not trying to, you're not thinking about the notes that are coming up, right? You're just, you're hearing the music as it, as it comes along, one, one note at a time. And the other thing, when you listen to music, sometimes you'll pick out one particular instrument or, and you're listening to that, picking it out of everything else and you focus on that. Other times you listen to the whole orchestra or band or whatever it is like that. And it's the same thing with mindful awareness. Sometimes we're very focused on you know, what we're actually doing with our hand or the steps that we're taking or something like that. But other times we're just sort of being there with the, the whole orchestra, but we're, we're still following the, the, the music of the present staying right in it. And that's why I would say that you described there, you were, you know, you were following the whole orchestra there for a while, but you're still in the present moment. You weren't thinking your mind wasn't running on its own from one thing to another. Yeah, it's not thinking, but it's knowing. It's it's just knowing, knowing. Yeah. that's right. So it's just, it's sometimes called bare awareness, you know, or, uh, you know, words like use, it's like, like that are used to describe it. And that's, it's, it, it's a quality of just openness and receptiveness, but there's that relaxed quality. There's no doing, you know, no trying to, Make anything happen or project. So, so then I, I then I realized that um, uh, mindful awareness can get into very powerful uh, level, you know, if it is way and can be practiced. Yeah, I can. Good. Yes. Um, for me, was um, when I went to my when I was working by myself, you know, when I was doing the mindful walking. I wasn't drinking fluids this morning, and I got really high or juicy. I just felt very elevated. And then I came and got some water and went back, and when I sit by myself, I was in a little bit of Tai Chi as far as moving my head, just very, very, very slow from side to side. And um, my body started tingling on one side, but my body on the right side. So I stopped, kind of stopped to scare me a little bit. I stopped. And then everybody, everything gets greener. You know, and, and and this house is full of treasures, like big treasures. And now I'm finding like little treasures, like little flowers. I was walking slow before, but now that I'm walking slower, I'm finding that I'm now finding little things, like little tiny little things that I discover. And would that be mindful awareness? Uh, as if you're being in the present, you're being mindful, and as long as your mind's not running loose by itself. Yeah. No, it's right. just like, but just observing one little thing at a time. That's right. If something comes up in your attention, then you go ahead and examine it. Yeah. Right. 
Uh, another quality that you may have noticed about mindful awareness, and this is why the way, this is the way I feel when I'm being very mindful, is is almost like a childlike state. Like just everything is 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 new, and everything is interesting. You know, this morning, after the second sit that we did together this morning, and I was just walking into the house, and it was starting to warm up. And I, and I could feel the warmth in the air, and it was, you know, I'm uh, 64 years old. I felt a lot of warm air, but it was just like it was the first time I ever felt the, the, the warm air, you know. And that's one of the things that uh, I particularly enjoy about it, is it gives everything this quality of being uh, special here. Well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that, you know, it seems like everyone that I've heard from now or other times is, is uh, finding this uh, to be something of interest and satisfaction to do, so I'm glad of that. Yeah? I also can answer your question last night. Yeah? The, the breath into the sleeping yeah. is the out breath. It's the, oh, very good. <laughs> Did you wake up on the other out breath? Huh? Did you wake it's, up on It's impossible. Because <laughs> I know when you wake up, like, wake up like impossible. Because when you, when, you when you meditation, and then you can just like balance, and then you get in the sleep. Yeah. But when you wake up, you need to have the immediately meditation, so uh, mindfulness, so you can know the, yeah. the, the breath within one breath. Mm -hmm. That's the... Uh, from the beginning what it is that what it is that we're trying to find out what we're, where where we're trying to get to so what we're starting with is that all of us all people 
feel like they have a self, or that they, maybe it's more accurate to say they are a self. And this is something that it's natural, everyone that you know feels and believes that they are a self. And this self seems like something that's real and substantial. Um, most people don't ever really think too much about what the nature of this self is. It's so, it's so universal that everybody agrees, yes, uh, uh, I've got a self and you've got a self, that we don't even have much reason to ever question or wonder or look into the nature of this. So it is not very clearly defined in our, our minds, but it is something that we believe, and that belief is re reflected in all of our actions all of the time. We're always acting, and you know, that is, I, I know that this is, you, you agree with me that you are acting and all the people around you are always acting as though there is some sort of real substantial self. And sometimes we describe this and talk about this as the ego, you know. And, uh, some people have big egos and some people have needy egos and some people have sensitive egos and we get our egos hurt or we get our egos inflated. And this is all part of that self thing. But there's more to it than that, you know. Uh, the other things that we, uh, the things that we seem to associate with the self, uh, uh, and I, I want you to add any that you think that uh, uh, might be needed to add to what most people, or uh, perhaps all people, mean or think of when they say self, they, when they feel like they are a self, or when they refer to somebody else as a self. There is uh, a group of qualities and attributes that we associate with ourself. There's some, there's some nature that I have, some set of qualities that I am, some kind of person that I am, isn't it? Right? Agree with that? Um, and the things that we mentioned last night, just to remind you of this continuity, it seems like, you know, we've been this self for a long, long time. Now, we don't need to, we, we could get into the question of where this self come from, did the self come into existence when we were born, or did the self exist before? Let's leave that for the moment. Let's just deal with the self that we feel like we have always been, or that, that we feel like we've been as long as we can remember. So there's a continuity. Uh, another obvious one is that there is, uh, it's unitary. I mean, it's sort of silly, a silly idea to think uh, of our uh, of ourself as, as being in the plural. You know, they, yeah. so this, this is one of the things that uh, just naturally we associate with the idea of softness. 
And sort of related to that, but still something else again, is that uh, it has a, uh, a quality of independence, separateness, distinctiveness, whatever this self is. Uh, it seems like, you know, it, it's not too difficult to distinguish what is self from what's not self. But even if we haven't looked yet, the sort of feeling is that, that this self has a quality of separateness and that we should be able to, at least to some degree, distinguish what is self from what is not, right? And then I think the last main things that we really, where we really uh, feel that we have a self or are a self is we feel like our experiences our sensory experiences, but also our emotional experiences, and uh, you know, pain, pleasure, things like that. That it's it's our self that has those experiences. The self is the experiencer. Right? And then the one last thing, and this one's a very strong one, is that whatever we are, uh, this. We feel like it is the self that does things, makes decisions, carries out actions, right? About um, uh, cause and effect. If we do something, we uh, we will have to bear the consequences. If we, if I go go up, you know, get a PhD, I, you know, if I go study for a PhD, somebody else don't have that PhD. I, I get a PhD. That's right. There's. I I think. You're right in what you say. I think that fits in with the same idea of continuity. We feel like oh, okay. yes. the things that we do right. today, you know, are for the benefit of of the it's the self that's going to enjoy the results of it later on is the same self that we are now. Okay, right? I see. Yeah, right. continuity idea. So what we're what we're going to look at, what we want to do then, is look at more carefully this all more or less universal idea of the self that we are or that we have. And we want to compare it with the five aggregates. And the question here, the first question is, is there anything that we would normally attribute to the self or that the self seems necessary or required for that cannot be accounted for by the five aggregates. So this this is our this this is one way that we will approach this is uh, so we're going to try to find out if, if if the five aggregates adequately accounts for everything that we would say that we need to invoke the idea of of a self for, then we've accounted, we've accounted for the self in the five aggregates. So then the next thing we'll do is look at the five aggregates and see if there's anything there that has any of these qualities that we have always sort of assumed that the self had. So in other words, we're going to, if we succeed in satisfying ourselves that anything that we would need to have a self for uh, that the
the five aggregates covers that. Then we'll go to those five aggregates and say, is there anything there that constitutes a, a real substantial entity that we could put the label self on? Uh, is there anything, is, is, can we find something in there that has the kind of continuity that we normally attribute to the self? Do we find, looking in that five aggregates, can we find a self that uh, is unitary, single? Looking in the five aggregates, can we find something that is has the kind of separateness and independence and distinctiveness that we attribute to the self? And uh, is there something in the five aggregates that is the experiencer and the doer in the sense that the self is. So this is where we want this is what we want to establish. Because the Buddha said everything that a person is, any individual, is uh, all, all that they are and everything that they are are those five aggregates. And that there is no self beside the five aggregates. And that when you look at the five aggregates you do not find that kind of self that we start out intuitively assuming that we all are and that we all have. So that's what, is, is the goal clear? Not quite. So uh, you're saying that no, the, the two halves, you're saying the first half, do the five aggregates cover somewhere everything that we just listed Right. That's the first part. And the answer should be yes. That's right. Okay. Or put the other way, do we have to have some kind of self outside of and separate from yeah. the five aggregates? And if you put it that way, the answer should be no. Okay? Right. Yeah. So okay, so that's the first half. So we're going to first show that the five aggregates are sufficient to cover all the attributes that we think of as a self. So that gives at least the possibility that that's a possibility that there's no self, or there's a possibility that the five aggregates right. are the self or contain the self. Somewhere. So that's the second part. That's the second part. Look at each aggregate and mm -hmm. see if there's any self in any right. of those. Right. So, so I'm asking myself the question, would I be convinced mm -hmm. if you did both those things? Well, that's a good question. Now, if we do a good job of this, uh, you should be intellectually convinced. Most people can, if you, if you make a good examination of this, become satisfied intellectually that indeed you don't need any self other than the five aggregates to account for all experience. And so any sort of a soul or anything like that would be a completely hypothetical construct with absolutely nothing that requires it. Uh, so if we do a good job, you, you should reach a point of being, uh, of being intellectually satisfied with it. But being experientially satisfied with it is a different thing. Yeah. To achieve that, that's where the insight practice comes in. That's where mindfulness comes in, is those things that you discover to be reasonable intellectually, you need to see 
if in fact this uh, is borne out by experience. Sure, and I'm, I'm still working on the intellectual part, just to make sure I'm with you. So my, my worry intellectually is, you know the phrase, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Right. And so even if we find no self in any aggregate, all of those things about self somewhere with some contradiction. Yeah, we'll no, see. No, no, and that's right. This is this is a part of the discussion. You know, if if we don't find, if we can't point to some part of the aggregate that's, that is the self, then maybe somehow it's uh, the way it would be described is an emergent property of yeah, the good. aggregates taken together. If we take them all together. Does, is, is there something that emerges from that right. that is a self? Right. Okay, so we're going to cover that. Well, we're going to cover that, okay. right. Okay, that's fine. Okay. When we're, looking, when we're looking into the aggregates or to the aggregates out of the whole, and we're finding that they, they perform all the functions of a self, then whether or not they are a self will depend on whether or not they are the kind of self that we've gone through our life believing in and reacting to the world on the basis of, that's when we go in there and we look to see if it has those various attributes and qualities that we, we normally uh, uh, think of as belonging to the self. Okay? So this is, this is, this is where we're, we're going. And this, in terms of the progress of insight, this is called the stage of purification by overcoming doubt. It would be great if we could all have popcorn right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's not a magic trick. <laughs> so, So let's begin to, you know, by looking to see, you know, uh, what are the things that, okay, we were, yesterday we were looking at the two Debras, and in a sense, we did for all of us. The question is, now this, this is, okay, is there some kind of continuous self, or can the sense of continuity that we uh, are, are attributing to the self, can that be accounted for in the aggregate? And now, if I reflect honestly, and perhaps you'll have the same experience, on how I have changed over time and how I am at different times, uh, I find vast differences. In other words, we said this self seemed like it has some collection of identifiable attributes that this is the kind of personality that we have. And I find that there's enormous changes. There may be some things that are the same in us. I mean, there are some characteristics that I seem to have had uh, all my life. But there are a lot of other characteristics that I've had that I had them at one time and then they have disappeared. They've been replaced by something else or so on and so forth. Is that your experience? 
that you have changed. Your personality has actually changed. And qualitative, uh, uh, all these attributes, which isn't to say that they're all totally different. Some are the same. But if we take those ways in which you've stayed the same over time, are they what you really mean when you think of yourself? Can you look at those and say that's what you think of as yourself? And I think the answer that you'll come up with, the answer that people usually come up with is, well, no, because there's not much difference between the attributes that did change and the ones that didn't. That it could just as easily have been these that changed and those that didn't. There's nothing special about what stayed the same, and or as opposed to what changed. And so when we look at that, we say, well, yes, my personality consists of a whole variety of tendencies of the way that I view things and the way that I think and the way that I react, but these have been subject to change over time and they're constantly under revision. And when I dig through the whole pile of them, and where would that pile be located in terms of the five aggregates? It would be located in the mental formations, yeah. So these tendencies that we have to to, to think and feel and behave in a particular way, they're conditioned characteristics, part of our mental formations. They, have, they uh, are there and have been reinforced through our past experiences and activities. And if I examine them, none of them stand out as being special in the sense of, well, this obviously is something that belongs to a self, whereas these other things are just incidental attributes, but this is core self. Um, one thing that accounts for the continuity is memories. So ask yourself, you know, in, in your gut feeling, uh, if you had one of those kinds of accidents that somebody had where, you know, you uh, had amnesia and you couldn't remember uh, anything about your past, would you still be the same self? In a sense, it seems like you would be. But then on the other hand, you know, from, from the point of view of just objectively, well, if you don't know what your past is, then this is a self that certainly its past continuity doesn't seem to be that important to its nature, its intrinsic nature. So, and, and of course, you know, how much of your past do you really remember? We lose, we forget more and more and more of our past as we go along. And we just, we have just enough of it to sort of fill in the gaps. We kind of remember what happened between uh, our uh, freshman year in university and, uh, uh, you know, the first job we got after we graduated or something like that. But, but the details are spotty, and, and the farther we go in the past, the spottier those details are. So, whereas it's not denying that these have some significance and importance, because they obviously do, but they seem to be an awfully weak thing in terms of, you know, trying to build a self out of these things. 
when we examine, and, and where do you find the memories? They're also mental formations, right? When we examine the contents of this aggregate of mental formations, we find the personality characteristics and we find the memories. And if we look for the continuity, the continuity is more like the continuity of Paul Bunyan's acts. You know? Paul Bunyan's acts, I, I, I didn't bring it with me, it's at home. It's Paul Bunyan's original acts. The handle's been replaced about 25 times now, and the head's been replaced about 10 times. But it is the original, same exact acts that Paul Bunyan used, right? You get the idea? In other words, all the parts didn't change at once. So we've always had some the same, and some, some things changed. And so, really, that's what the continuity is, is that we go back, because we'll see that, well, in this stream, everything didn't just, doesn't, at least as far as we know, looking back, it didn't seem like it just all disappeared at once and, uh, and was replaced by something totally different. So th this is one thing that accounts for continuity. Yeah. What happens when, when you sort of go back to your childhood? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if I remember saying what you're saying. Like for me, growing up as a little kid in Mexico, you know, in, in third, fourth grade, I could never pay attention to the teacher. I was always dreaming and drawing instead of just looking at doing my work. Mm -hmm. and, then, and, and then I lost that. I sort of lost all of that, trying to accomplish all of these things, kind of changing countries and everything. And now I'm back to painting again. So yeah. I, I'm almost like I'm connected again to my childhood again. Mm -hmm. and, and it's too bad that I lost it, you know, because mm -hmm. I, I was doing art when I was a little kid and nobody noticed it. Mm -hmm. So nobody encouraged me to go, continue doing it or go to an art school, you know. And now I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm back to art again. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like my biggest pressure for myself, you know. Well, that's wonderful. That would be sort of an example of something that uh, wasn't entirely lost. There was some seed of it remained and was able to be revived. The other thing about the continuity, though, where you bring up childhood, and this is, this is a really important part of it, is you ever heard the saying that the child is uh, father to the man? And the meaning of that is the, chi the child is father to the man. I haven't heard that. So the meaning of it, of course, is that uh, there is this causal connectedness. What we are today is a causal result of what we have done and what we have been in the past. As a matter of fact, if we look back on this whole history of this self that, with its constantly changing attributes, uh, really the strongest aspect of continuity that's there is the causal continuity that what we are today is the result of what we have experienced, what we have done, uh, what, you know. So where did you come from? Well, you created yourself. You made yourself. You didn't know it at the time. You thought you were doing something else, but you were creating the person that's here in this room now. And this is a very important idea. Um, if we look at the aggregate of mental formations, they are all uh, what 
is present in that aggregate now uh, is is cumulative, and what 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 you are now, what you manifest now, is the result of these uh, of these past influences. This is what's called karma. What you are now is the result of your past karma. Your past thoughts, words, and deeds have created what you are now. This is a very interesting idea. But karma means, uh, karma literally means action. And uh, actions have results. But what the Buddha said is when I say karma, I mean intentions and I mean thoughts, words, and deeds that arise out of intentions. And this is what has formed you throughout your life. And this is what has caused these different changes to take place. But what you are now is a cumulative result of that. Some of, some of what you are now is influenced by what you, what you were and what you did and what you experienced as a child. But that has been modified and continues to be modified throughout. So we find that the continuity aspect of the self that we think we are can be accounted for in the five aggregates. Because what, what, the, what is present now is caused by the past. other thoughts on that? Um, sometimes, you know, the actions of other people c close to me, uh, when I'm just about to fall asleep, I confuse the action with my action. Yes. And uh, like, e even, even if, say, for example, uh, I was recommended to watch a movie, and this particular movie is quite disturbing. Mm -hmm. It involves uh, the husband uh, killing the uh, what is it? Uh, marry a rich, you know, very, uh, very kind wife, and then committed adultery, and eventually having, eventually uh, this person had to kill the, uh, kill, kill the, the, the person that he's uh, having an affair with, and and, uh, and and the whole movie was quite disturbing, and and you know after watching that that movie, I feel like my relationship with my wife has been terribly damaged, and uh, and then you know she she felt very disturbed too. And then, and then, when she went to sleep, she dreamt that I was, you know, I stabbed her. Remind <laughs> <laughs> me not to watch that. And, but the thing is, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the actions of my friends, um, the, the bad things that they do, but when I'm just about to fall asleep, it's, uh, it's, it be, you know, I, it becomes fuzzy whether I, I, I have done it or they have done it. Or a lot of times, my understanding, my feeling of myself is actually quite fuzzy. It's, it's non-specific, it's just like a general feeling. Yeah, and then, you know, other people's actions can easily have merged into my perception of myself. Well, yes, uh, that's, I mean, we, we'll hopefully get around to talking about, you see, part of what our mind does is it, it tells the story of our life and of who we are. And when you're falling asleep after watching a movie like that, or in other circumstances, the, the storyteller part of your mind, if it's not being properly constrained, 
can confuse some of the elements there, you know, and it can seem like it's part of the story of, of who you are. So the continuity is uh, it's kind of fuzzy. Well, and this is a really important thing. Continuity is fuzzy. Yeah. And the idea of permanence, this idea of, you know, when we usually think of the self, we weren't thinking of something that was so impermanent and so changeable. And that isn't the sense that we really carried into this discussion. But when we look, we find that that's the nature of what's there is, okay, we can find it has a sameness. We can account for the, for the, co for the continuity that we know is there through causality. But what we find that we thought was there that wasn't is this this sameness, this permanence, this this nature, this uh, you know that, and, and that's that's what's missing in what we found so far. Maybe we'll find it somewhere else, but certainly we're not we're not, we're finding impermanence instead of permanence when we delve into the continuity of the self. Did you have a question, Sophia? Uh. It's a very good way to watch TV and movies is with mindfulness. If you don't, you identify with what's going on in the movie, and by identifying with it, that becomes part of your mental formations that determines your future uh, reactions and behaviors. That's why I think it is such a bad thing that so many children grow up, you know, that I, I don't remember the statistics, but I read them how many murders the average child has watched on television and the movies by the time, by the time they're uh, 20 years old. How many violent killings and beatings and all kinds of things. You know, e even though there isn't, it, the, the imprint isn't as strong as if they actually did these things themselves, it's not without an influence. And if you watch a movie with mindfulness, then you stay in that place of object objectivity, and uh, it doesn't have the same kind of imprint. It has uh, it, it has a much more beneficial imprint because instead of identifying with it, you know, perhaps your mindfulness is allowing you to take a more uh, a more compassionate uh, or understanding or reasonable perspective than allowing yourself to be caught in the emotional state of the good guy killing the bad guy sort of thing. I, I do watch movies with mindfulness and my wife hates it. Because I'm always pointing out the flaws. Yeah, you get no, yeah. that doesn't make sense because yeah. she's like, just watch the movie. Just shut up and watch the movie. For some people it spoils the movie, but the other thing is that, you know, uh, if you watch a movie with mindfulness, somebody else can say, I don't know how you could stand to watch that. Well, it was really easy because I wasn't, I wasn't identifying with it. So, you know, I, I had that objectivity. So, okay. Yeah, I tried now, that before. Go ahead. I tried to watch the movie and uh, so many times with the uh, kind of mind. It's easy. You, you, yeah. you just keep the, 
the dis distance is to keep uh, the, your right. mind away from the 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 plane. Yeah. And then you can see why 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 those uh, the story mm -hmm. catching the how how they play, how they use the story to yeah. catch the mm -hmm. to catch your mind. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can see all those things. And you can also see in terms of the storyline and the plot, you can see the uh, the ignorance and the mistake in the yeah, yeah. in the character yeah. <laughs> that leads them to to do these ridiculous things that they do. Yeah. Yeah. And why I listen to this and I went back to to the practice the self part. Yeah. Uh, because doing a meditation and uh, the practice. That's a, that is, that's a very good question. And that's where we, we're going to end up with the, we're going to get past all these easy questions and get to the tough questions after a while. So, but being mindful is watching your own movie with that same objectivity, with that same distance. Watching the character who's starring in your own movie so that you become aware of uh, the mistakes that, that, they're making, and uh, you know, and, yeah. so that's what you want. Maybe I had never thought of this till right now. Maybe we could even make watching movies into a way of learning to be. Uh, actually, it's better just watch your own movie. It's a <laughs> but when you do watch a movie, watch it with mindfulness, and it will help you to understand. If you don't clearly understand what it is you're trying to do in terms of watching yourself with mindfulness, it, it, it can help you to understand that. You're trying to watch yourself with that same kind of objectivity, unattachment, un without the emotional attachment that obscures the judgment and so forth. Yes? What amazes me to me, um, how, how um, people think of a lot of the characters that they see in film and, and television, especially television, mm -hmm. and and, um, and follow those kind of a behavior, even in speech language. Every six months, I hear it, like, one word, and everybody burns it until it's until it's gone. It's like if people pick up language to television, and they use it until somebody. Else. And I studied theater for seven years, and and it was really interesting to see these, you know, working in different shows. How just the short Cheers, um, they have like ten writers and each writer has a character. And they get into these big tables and they write and they play psychology games with each other. And they manipulate things. And one time I had a writer as a client cutting his hair and I said to him, I said, 
do you guys ever take any responsibility of how you manipulate people with your writing and how you affect kids with your writing? And especially one show that I mentioned to this writer, he never came back to me again. He was very insulted. Yeah. But, you know, th these writers, uh, they don't understand, and, and I think it's because a lot of parents are working and they don't watch their kids, their kids are in front of the TV, and they become, it becomes like their mother. Uh, they, they end up uh, very sick, you know, a lot of wrong ideas as they're growing up, and, and it's, it's, really, it's really sad, you know? Well, I, I, I do agree with you in that. The worst movies are actually, most of the characters are fairly one-dimensional. If you watch them with mindfulness, they just end up being rather absurd. Uh, a really well-made, well-acted, well-produced movie is has got a lot of realism. If it's based on a story that's very well created, then you know <clears throat> that is something that you can learn a lot from. You, if you can see in a movie somebody that is that you can identify with, that oh, I've been like that. Oh, I. I've been in that situation and felt that way and reacted that way. That's a great opportunity for practicing mindfulness because it gives you automatically a much better perspective and, and maybe you can even review your own previous experience and view of what you see in the movie. Anyway, the one last thing I want to say about, uh, you know, right now is explore some other aspects of this, but before we get away entirely from this idea that <coughs> Um, what we are is not so much a thing or a process continuously changing and the continuity that we perceive uh, resides primarily in the causality that, that what you have been and what you have done has caused you to be what you are now. The most important thing about that is, first of all, we realize that whatever the self turns out to be at the end of this investigation, that we've already discovered that in terms of these attributes and characteristics, it's not fixed. It is very changeable. And not only that, we now have a pretty good idea of how you go about changing what you are in the future by changing what, what you do right now. This, this is very important. Very important part of the whole Dharma is that what you do in every moment is create the new karma and the, and the person that you will be tomorrow and next month and next year is the result of the karma that you're, you are in the process of creating now. Extremely important idea. Yeah. But don't do you agree though that even though that's true, and even if someone fully buys into that, that they can change everything about themselves, they could still have a feeling of a self. Yes, that's right. So we 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 have yeah we haven't got to the point of there not being a self, but we've changed our notion of self in in a significant way. The self is no longer has any properties of immutability. Right. And it doesn't necessarily even have to have a single characteristic that remains the same over time. Right. And furthermore, if we, you know, we still feel like we are a self that has some control over what we do and think now, so that means that we're also 
in a position of being able to change this no longer immutable self in the future. So, so that's the power of this. We can change who we are. It doesn't matter the past we can't change, but the future we can change. And the place that it changes us is in the present. So how does this relate to what we were talking about, um, about the five aggregates? Well, all of this that we're talking about is yeah, in the aggregate of mental formations. Yes. Every experience you have involves a perception. That perception is a mental formation, and that perception doesn't just disappear forever. That perception becomes a, it, it becomes a part of your aggregate of mental formations. And then whatever feelings and whatever actions and so forth that happen in association with that perception likewise becomes a part of the mental formations that will determine future perceptions and future actions. You see the circularity there? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, what about, you know, being the owner of our action, the heir to our action? It sounds like this. Like yeah. Yes. You are, <laughs> you are the heir, you are the owner. You need to own, own your actions and you need to accept. What you are now is the result of, of the past in this same stream of being. Well, that, wouldn't that kind of prove that there is a contin con continuous a person owning the action and receiving, you know, becoming the heir to that, those actions? Yeah, I, we have no reason to deny that continuity. Okay, now, and so, but it remains to be seen if that is really a self or not. Well, we had a whole lot of other we had a whole lot of other characteristics that were, and what remember we started out with the idea that we what we may end up with in the end is something that accounts for all of the things that we needed that we thought we needed a self to account for, but doesn't have but but doesn't have uh, the same characteristics that we thought a self did, I including being real and substantial. Uh, unitary, continuous, separate. Uh, well, you know, when I think of self, I actually think of a, a committee that that are always, you know, have new members, old, you know, old member retiring, and then you know, it's really like a group of people because you know, I can never have a clear consensus of exactly what I want to do, except for a few things like one coming to that's right. the retreat. That's like it, it's like a hundred percent vote, but a lot of the other things are. Oh, like you know, very, very. Uh, you you're, know, you're right, and, and that's what that's what we all experience. Yeah, absolutely, that's what we all experience. And this is this. Okay, this this makes us. Let's, let's look. Have a look at this because uh, it certainly seemed to us that our self was one thing, and now you're saying, yeah, but it actually seems like it's a lot of different things. It's a lot of different things. A, a lot of different things, and and yes, uh, you know, even in terms of. We've just been talking as though the personality that you are right now is one thing. But if you think about it, that's not even true. Are you really the same personality when you are at work 
that you are when you're with your parents, as you are when you're with your lover, or as you are with your... I mean, no. What we do, we have a whole... In our aggregate of mental formations, we have a whole pile of characteristics, and we kind of assemble different personalities to match the situations that we're in. So there's not even unity in that. But as you mentioned, it goes beyond that. And we start to discover that in meditation. Uh, if we pay attention. Actually, it's there all the time anyway, but you sit down and meditate, and I am the one that is going to sit here and keep my attention on my breath for the next 45 minutes. A little while later, I am the one that doesn't want to do this anymore. But the one... <laughs> they're both still... They're both still there, but... The, the hat that says I on it has been changed. A different, a different part of the mind, a different mental process is now wearing the hat. So, if you pay attention in meditation, you start to realize, well, this has been going on all my life. I have all these different uh, mental constructs, or I like to think of them as mental processes. The, we don't have one mind. We, what we label with mind is this big collection of mental processes. And they're hierarchically organized. There's a lot of very simple mental processes that take care of simple tasks. And, but they are sort of regulated by higher mental processes that can't even do those things, but their job is just to regulate the mental processes that can do things. But when you get to the top level, we don't, if you look in there, you don't come up with an I on top, a chief, of, a chief executive officer that's in control of everything. Instead, you come up with um, a, a large plurality that actually changes from time to time. But it's more like a board of directors, as you say, that is deciding what's going on. And, you know, when there's a few members of that board that have strong voices, they'll argue about the I-hat, and it'll pass back and forth between them, depending on which one, which one's yelling the loudest and which one has the most support from the other members of the board, right? So, I starts to fall apart very quickly when you examine this, that I am a lot of different mental processes, each with different responsibilities and agendas, and sometimes with different ideas than the other ones about what should be happening in the present moment or what should be done about things. Well, and you're saying that partly because you know a lot about the brain. Uh, yes, but I'm also saying it because I looked in my mind and seen that happening. Well, but most people, well, I'll speak for myself, you know, I have to make a decision. And there's a lot of conflicting, yeah. should I send this email, should I send this email? I'm sending it, you know? Yeah. I feel like I that's right. made that decision. Yes, that's right. There were a lot of conflicting things that went into that, but I pushed the button. Uh, you but you have different agendas in your mind. Yeah. You, know, so you, you know, there's a reason why uh, one, a part of you don't want to send that email. Right. That, that, that part of the mental process has its own agenda. Mm -hmm. and, and the one that wants to send it, uh, right. that's, that's a different I agenda. I felt like the chairman of the board there. I chose, mm -hmm. out of all this competing thing, yeah, and 
are you still chairman of the board? Ten minutes later, and say, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What is interesting, what is, what you need, this is where the mindfulness practice becomes really helpful, the, the, the observing of what's going on. Uh, and there is this, there, there genuinely is this sense that there's somebody that, that arbitrates in the end and makes a decision. And we need to look at that closely. But if you begin to examine your mind more and more closely, what you'll find happening, and this will help give you a clue to it in the end, is that an, an action will arise and the self will own the action. Uh, you look more closely and you'll find the action is, in, is preceded by uh, an uh, impulse to action. And uh, an intention. The intention arises and the I appropriates it and says, I decided. But when you look closely, and if you allow yourself to stay in that observational state, you'll see, oh, look at that. The intention just came out of nowhere. And as long as nothing stops it, the action follows the intention. And uh, the eye that I seem to be in the moment was just watching the process. The eye that's watching the process definitely did not generate that intention and didn't even, uh, it didn't even approve the intention. I could perhaps have stopped the action, but I didn't, I just watched. And you'll find this goes on all the time, you know. It begins when you wake up in the morning and, you know, need to get out of bed. I, I, this is an experience that I have quite often, is that I wake up in the morning and I know that I'm going to get out of bed, but instead of, of, of thinking that I'm going to decide, I just lay there and wait until it happens. <laughs> sure enough, I, after a few minutes, I get up. And, you know, and then it goes on throughout the day. I, I can just watch the intentions arise. And what normally happens is we appropriate that intention to the I. Uh, we didn't really get around to talking about what the I is, but, but you know, uh, if, we, if we have a thought or if we, if we communicate to somebody else, we have no hesitation to say, you know, well, I decided. Right? And not only that, if you watch carefully, if, if they say, well, why did you decide that? your mind will come up with a story to explain it, you know. And if you're honest with yourself, it's, wow, that's the first I heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the feeling? You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, I agree that we don't know. We don't understand why we made certain choices. Yeah. I, I agree with you there. And we do make up stories yeah. when asked, but we don't, we don't know why. So what we find is choices are being made, intentions are being uh, generated, and actions are coming out of intentions all along, all day long. And we realize that, you know, there's no 
the I that we started worrying about really isn't necessary to account that. It's account for that. It's happening. And, and we're not disputing that it's happening. Yes, intentions are being generated. But what we're calling into question is, you know, is, is there a, an executive in charge? If you examine closely, you'll start to discover there, what there is. There's one, one of your mental processes is kind of a narrator. It's telling the story of who you are. And so, and something will, there will be an event. You have an experience. So a, a sensory experience. And of course, due to your pre-existing mental formations, that will result in a particular perception. And likewise, due to pre-existing mental formations, that will result in an intention to act in a particular way. And out of that intention will flow action. And if you watch closely, you'll find there's a narrator that comes along after the fact and says, well, this happened to me, and this is how I felt, and so this is what I thought, and this is what I decided to do. You know, and you say, mm-hmm, okay. Is, maybe this narrator is the boss, and it's just describing what really happened. But if you look closely, you find the narrator's not the boss at all. The narrator is really a low-level flunker <laughs> whose job is just to sort of tell the story and broadcast it. Well, the, well, I think uh, good liars, they also have uh, excellent editors and excellent lawyers in their mind. Yeah, they, right. they, they know how to cover, co you know, cover it and get away with things. And they, <laughs> they want to edit things, they want to cut things, and yes. exaggerate things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. So where do the intentions come from? Because maybe they come from the self. There are, well... <laughs> And, and I don't mind if you call where they come from the self. That's going to be completely fine with me. But it's not going to be the kind of self that we started out thinking it was going to be. Okay. That's what's important. Well, I'd be very happy to, if this ended with knowing what the, the self mm -hmm. really is. Not that there is one, there is one, but what, what, what is it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> based on what's happening once again, let's look at the five aggregates. There's a sensation, the rupa aggregate. There is a perception based on past experience. There is feeling associated with that. There is a past narrative. There's a stored narrative in the past about this happened to me and, and this is what it felt like, blah, blah, blah. So that narrative already contains the idea of an I, whether an I really exists or not. It's the, they call it the center of narrative gravity. You know? So there's a center of narrative gravity. So in the unconscious mind, mental processes that you're not conscious of, you know, and I'm not asserting this, I'm just reminding you that, that you're not conscious of these mental processes. These processes that you're not conscious of, though, look at past history. One incident, two incidences, a thousand incidences, 
identical incidences, similar incidences, maybe even only vaguely similar incidences. But it, in a flash, sorts through them all and comes up with a proposal as to this is what we ought to do about this. And that's what emerges. That's what you become conscious of is the intention for an action based on those calculations that have taken place beneath the surface. And ordinarily, what you do is the narrator says, I decided. And this becomes part of the story that is going to determine your actions and behavior in the future. <clears throat> so that's how these intentions come up. Now what's really interesting is, and, and this is, you say, yeah, yeah, okay, I can see most of the time that happens. But you know that sometimes when I start out thinking I'm going to do one thing, but I decide not to do it. I mean, isn't this one of the things we were talking about last night? When you find yourself uh, about to do or say something that is unwholesome, you recognize it and you stop and say, all right, got you there, teacher. Who's going to stop me from saying or doing this thing, right? It's got to be the self, right? There's nobody else that can, there's nobody else that's got to be the self. And the other thing, the other kind of example, too, is where you have, can't make up my mind. Should I do this or should I do that? Should I do this or should I do that? And it seems like the self decides. Okay. Well, now, in that collective of mental formations, we know that, that not, not all of these uh, various mental processes always agree about things, right? They sometimes have different opinions. As long as there's one really strong predominant opinion, things are going to tend to go that way and there's not much question. So if I ask you, you know, what would you like for uh, a little dessert after we finish our talk here? Have some nice fresh cat food, uh, just open the can, <laughs> or some vanilla ice cream. You're not really going to have to ponder that very long, right? You know the answer. That's a no-brainer, exactly. You know, the answer comes up. But, you know, uh, on the other hand, the choice might be something else, and as you're trying to decide. So, but when you become conscious of something like this, there is this sense of self. The narrator's there telling the story and says, well, okay, uh, I have this choice to make. But, you know, once again, if you examine it carefully, the narrator not only doesn't have any power to make the choice, the, the narrator, if you, if you watch the narrator closely, listen to the narrator closely, mm -hmm. uh, the, the narrator wouldn't even begin to know, I mean, if you leave it up to the narrator, you've got to pull out a coin and flip it. <laughs> right? yeah. Pull out a coin and, and flip it. You know? but, then the, but then somebody else has to decide whether you're going to call it heads or tails. Decision, decisions get made, and some decisions come up, they're very closely balanced, 50-50. You know? Should I do the wholesome thing, or should I do the unwholesome thing? Um, let's take another example that, okay, the, an intention arises for an action. 
the narrator comes on the scene but doesn't immediately appropriate that and say, I decided this. And there's a little gap. And then another idea, another possibility emerges, or maybe two or three. Now we come into decision. If, if, if the intention that arises isn't immediately adapted, adopted, then out of that huge store of whether you want to think of it as a subconscious mind or whether you want to think of it as aggregate or cumulative mental formations, comes other possibilities. That pause is very important. The longer the pause, the more different possibilities there are that will determine the final decision. In the board of directors analogy, the longer you wait before the final decision is made, the more tardy directors might show up and express and provide new information and provide new opinions which enter into the final decision. And this is a kind of experience that we have when we hesitate and different possibilities emerge. And sometimes one of those newly arisen possibilities will have enough power to it to completely veto the previous intention. And this is a very important thing because mindfulness, just watching instead of immediately identifying with something, creates exactly that kind of gap. Now, supposing you were getting ready to uh, lose your temper and say something really nasty to somebody and it seemed like they really deserved it but you're being mindful and there's a pause and then you remember that the instruction is don't identify with your anger you know examine things this gives you the opportunity first of all it gives you the opportunity not to act on it but it also gives you the opportunity not even to uh, accept that you know, it's not a, Something, it's not something, it doesn't have to be something that you wanted to do but you stifled. You can even decline to, to accept that. You can even let that go. And that becomes the new story of what happened. But you don't really need some mysterious self coming along that's making that decision. What you need is that amongst your mental formations are some positive ones. You need some good karma to counter your bad karma. That's another way to think about it. If you've got some good karma to counter your bad karma, you know, then you can end up with a situation where you start to do something and then you recognize that's not a good idea and you cease to do it. You keep yourself from doing it. If it's really good, you may say that I'm not even going to identify with this anger and feeling. I'm just going to watch it and let it rise and pass away. Now, where does that come from? It comes from your past, past decisions, past actions. If you, if we think of ourselves in these terms, okay, we could easily slip into the idea that things are totally deterministic, that whatever you're going to do in the moment is entirely predetermined because of your past karma, because of your past, because of the existing mental formations. But 
that fails to note that sometimes sometimes the decision isn't clear cut like like cat food and ice cream sometimes the decision is very very delicately balanced 50-50 could go either way anything could sway that um, it also fails to account for the fact that uh, with as much accumulated karma as we have that if you give it time there is some good karma that could emerge that could counteract the bad karma so allowing some time for the process to take place is a very important result of mindfulness so what actually happens in the moment is not entirely affected by the past it's also affected by the present and the potency of the present comes from the fact that if you go into a place of mindfulness different alternatives can emerge with different degrees of force and power so you don't really need okay this is theoretical at this point I know but it's something that you can satisfy yourself through your experience you don't really need a self to make this change as a matter of fact it's hard to explain how the self as an agent is actually going to shift this it's much easier to understand how a shift's going to take place in terms of other competing influences so and the Buddha's recommendation how what is the proper path to follow he said good companions and good circumstances in other words you hang around with good people who are practicing the Dharma you listen to Dharma talks you read uh, Dharma books you do things like this you fill up your aggregate of mental formations with a lot of stuff to counteract the things that were that tend to cause you the problem in the past then you've got a lot of opportunity for countervailing impulses to arise countervailing karma to arise and cancel out some of your habitual long accumulated bad karma and put you on a different course so there is another thing too the only way that we could become enlightened is that we all have the Buddha nature within us and so that is the other thing in addition to all of these accumulated uh, tendencies both good and bad based primarily in craving we also have our Buddha nature so when it comes to a nice delicately balanced 50-50 you know I could pull the trigger or not our Buddha nature has the opportunity to shift the balance in a positive direction. Yeah. Uh, before go on, I just want to clarify because while listen, I I getting a little confused right now because earlier uh, through the Michael's question mentioned that we do own the action, then we do uh, 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 receive the consequence, mm -hmm. but if that is That's right. Okay. Then, who owns which body right on the, uh, the, the. Well, if you have, if, if there was, if, if we end up with a self in the end of the process, we're going to have a real problem. 
because, yeah, for exactly that reason. Because, uh, but if we don't have a self, if what we have is a collective, then we don't have a problem. How come we don't have a problem? Well, the collective, the, the consequences are going to come down upon the collective. Oh, okay. Right? They're not going to come down on any particular, you know, if, if we had a president of, 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 of the board, then it would have to come down on the president of the board, right? But since, since we have, you know, and, and also, too, it's not going to be, when, it, when I use the analogy of a board of directors, they usually take a vote. Although, for many of us, our internal board of directors is not always totally democratic. Sometimes yeah. it's partly whoever yells the loudest. Hardly mm. what? Whoever yells, yells the loudest, loudest. And, and, and drowns out the others. Right? That's, that's very much like real life. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's like there are some Republicans in our yeah. Head, right? <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you hear this, I can understand one part through this um, analysis that can describe mm -hmm. that. And I hear that, you know, because this is different things. And I feel like I'm more, having more understanding or compassion to, to the Deborah, what's the yeah. doing? Because so many things, and maybe, you know, Deborah do something, it's that moment, you know, yeah. that will be read louder, and then later on maybe change. So I have more compassion to that, and more compassion to maybe other. To everybody uh, else. Yes, too. because that, that yeah. moment, you know, this not, not, not this person, this, it's that moment that that body register too loud. Okay, and get into this. That 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 part I heard, but still I didn't hear hear that because sounds like a still have someone take get get a consequence. You know, still has somebody what? Somebody get a consequence for for consequence consequences for for the action or, or something or, or get into a karma or. Then I still, I still feel like that. The consequences come down on the whole five aggregates. But to me, uh, and to me uh, uh, you try to, the consequences, you try to go back to the uh, past and to see who is comfortable, right? Who is comfortable. But the consequences is either in the, in the present or in the future. Mm -hmm. In the present, that if it happens, Right? And you have to regroup and deal with the consequences rather than go back to the past and to see which one. No, I'm, I'm not, not thinking about which one. I'm thinking it's collective, but the consequences happen. It's all the collective that they need uh, to and share uh, the consequences. And, and also, you know, okay, let's, let's move, let's clarify this board of directors thing. But, you know, when we, these different mental processes that we imagine competing with each other to, uh, to produce a decision to act in one way or another. But they are not willful selves. They are impersonal processes that whatever, whatever opinion they are generating is the logical outcome of the information that they are using, which is the result of the past. So, you know, every single member of the board of directors is equally innocent. 
there's, it's not an intentional self in, in the whole pack. It is each of the each of them are processes that uh, are are following a logic, and they're based on the mental formations that uh, make them up. And so, if you're going to point, you know, if the day comes when the consequence comes down on the five aggregates, uh, where did the action come from? Well, you have to trace it back to all of its different causes, which it had many different causes came together to produce an action, and then the action produces a consequence. Uh, so you, what we mean here, you have to own you have to own your actions in the sense that uh, it would be foolish of you, foolish of you, to rant and say the universe is not fair, the world's not fair. I didn't deserve this. It shouldn't be this way. Why, you know, why do I have to be the one that's that's like this and blah blah blah, all this sort of stuff? And you say, own your karma means that. Uh, what what you are experiencing is the result of the past of that same continuity in the five aggregates. It, it's the roots of the present lie in the past of that same five aggregates, not in not in some uh, unfair god or some unfair world or something like that. That's where it is. And in the present, whatever you do in the present, you are going to the same five aggregates is going to experience consequences of it in some, in, to some degree or another. Uh, not in the simplistic way that we, we often hear, in, in, you know, uh, as if there's some God keeping score and say, oh, three bad actions that time, okay, so this bad thing's going to happen. It's not, it's not like that. But, but consequences do come around. The Buddha said that there's five levels of causality. There's the material level of causality. If you throw a handful of rocks up in the air, there's a good chance one of them's going to come down and hit you on the head. There's the biological level of causality. Some things about the way we are and the way things are biologically determined. Uh, birds fly. That's biological causality. That's why they don't swim. Why fish don't fly. Uh, there is mental causality, and that's really mental causality is what's operating in the aggregate of uh, mental uh, mental formations. Is every one of these mental processes is operating according to the laws of mental causality? There is a logic to mental processes. If this, then that. You know, A plus B, C, and so forth, and so. Whatever one of these, you know, when when uh, ment uh, some combination of mental formations causes you to have a particular perception, that perception is not accidental. It's not random. It is absolutely determined by the laws of mental causality, and that mental formation caused that perception. And then, when an intention to action arises as a result of that that perception, that too is the result of the laws of mental uh, causality. The next higher level, you see how we know that life, if you organize matter, 
life emerges, right? So the biological level of causality emerges out of the physical level. And as living organisms become more complex, they begin to have brains and minds. And so the mental level of causality arises out of the biological, right? The karmic level of causality emerges directly out of the mental level. You have an aggregate of mental formations. Each of these individual separate mental processes, thousands and thousands of them, interconnected with each other, but each one is following the logic of the mind, the mental logic. And so it takes the past experiences and memories and knowledge and wisdom or ignorance or whatever it is, processes it and comes up with a conclusion. 5,000 of them vote and the vote is 3,500 to 1,500 and so the, the end result is that you're going to have this emotion perform this action. That's now where karmic causality comes in. Karmic causality is where in the present moment, that's where this I is so essential to the process. When the narrator says, I had this experience and it made me feel this way. And so I decided to commit this action. And then I did it. Then that's where all the karma happens. The new karma. Old karma caused you to have a particular perception. Old karma caused a particular feeling and emotional response. So old karma is responsible for the emotional response and even the idea or the intention of carrying out a particular action. That's all the result of your old karma. That's from the past. Can't be changed. So don't blame yourself if you have this perception. You couldn't help it. Don't blame yourself if it causes you to feel this way. You couldn't help it. Don't blame yourself of this, if this thought of acting comes forth. That you can't help. But what you can help is if you say, well, I see what you did, and I am so angry, and you know what? This is what you deserve, and I'm going to do it. Okay? That is the new karma. That's what goes into, that's what goes into the mental formations, and that is what is going to determine your future perceptions, emotions, and intentional actions. And that is the one point that you can change the process. You can say, whoa, okay, yeah, this, this is a perception, but I know it's empty. It's my mind perceiving it. Might be, might be accurate, might not be accurate. This is the emotion. This is not a wholesome emotion. All my Dharma studies tells me whenever this emotion arises, it's only bad news. And that action is going to cause harm to that person. Not one of those things. I've, I've taken precepts not to do that kind of thing. That's the new karma. And what it does, you still have an I. The narrator is still there. So now you have a new story. This happened to me, but and, but when the emotion arose, I let it go of it. And when the uh, when the thought of doing such and such happened, I saw the error in it, and I let it go. That's your new karma. 
So now in the future, when something similar happens, the perception won't be the same as it was the last time, nor will the emotional response. Maybe the same emotion will come up, but not as strongly. And if you repeat this enough times, it won't even be the same emotion that comes up. And the same intentional action, and it'll be much easier not to commit the action. You see? You follow the story in here? This is, this is karma. This is past karma, creating present experience. Your future karma has everything to do with identifying with it, owning it, owning the intentions that come up, committing the actions that are, that are released by those intentions. And that's your new karma, and you'll have to suffer that. If it, whatever rocks it involves throwing in the air, some of them are going to come down on your head. Uh, but also, it's going to change the way you react in the future. And that's the most important aspect of karma. It seems like that to me is what the board of directors analogy works well for. Mm -hmm. When you do this action, you, put, you kind of get a new member. That's right. The board, yeah. Which is that action. So that's owning the action. Now he votes next time. That's so right. You should try to get a good guy now. That's right. You get a new good guy on the board. But also you got new good guys when you listen to Dharma talks and studied these ideas, listen to what the Buddha taught. And so you, you can make all kinds of good karma all of the time and, and through wholesome companions and, and wholesome circumstances. Would it clarify when you say the five uh, five of the the cost? Ah, oh, the fifth level of come home. People always ask that. <laughs> That's, that is the, uh, the ultimate level of causality the Buddha taught was, was a dependent origination. And where it's important is that it, the links of dependent origination can keep on cycling and this can keep on happening forever and ever and ever. Or, when uh, and this level of causality that emerges out of the karma can bring the whole process to a stop. So you can create the kind of karma that acting on the level of dependent origination leads to liberation. That is the fifth level of causality. That's, that's uh, nirvana? That's nirvana, nirvana. yeah. Yes. So do you mean the 12 links of dependent origination when you say that? Because you just said dependent origination. Well, uh, actually, I, I mean both. Dependent origination is a general term that applies to the universality of causality, you know, and, and we're talking about all these different levels of causality. So uh, that sort of goes without saying that the fifth level of the, that uh, dependent origination includes the universality of causality. But specifically what it refers to is the links of dependent origination that as they apply to the constant recreation of the, this uh, uh, cycle of, of existence. Yeah. So, other questions? Uh, 
So it, it would seem like it would be uh, accurate to say that, um, uh, say for example, uh, a, a group of senators approved funding on unjust war. Yeah. And then, you know, and then terrible things happen. People are upset, you know, of, of all the bad consequences. And therefore, we voted a lot of senators out, and then we voted a lot of new senators in. That's and right. Then, and then the war, they want to terminate this. So, so by, uh, by, you know, by, by really, this, you know, perfect parallel within, it's like the mind of the country, if, if we've done something terrible to another country and they decided to nuke us. That's right. And then, and then, and then, you know, we suffer the consequences at home. Right. If, if, you know, if, if we voted, you know, because we voted for the senator, the senator voted for the war. Mm -hmm. So ultimately the country as a whole has to suffer the fate of the entire country. That's right. And, you know, by, you know, say, firing the lobbyists, but, you know, getting rid of, you know, the, 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 the greedy lawyers and then hiring good people there, you know, such as having good Dhamma friends, you know, gradually we replace the bad members of the committee with good ones. Right. You know, we, we can draw a perfect parallel with the country full of millions of people, with, you know, with, a per with an individual person. That's a very, yes, you can certainly draw that parallel. With all these analogies, they're, they're not perfect, but they can help us understand more clearly what's actually going on. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you, um, when somebody intentionally is constantly messing with you and, and doing something to, to harm you or to, um, to create problems in your life mm -hmm. and unsettles your life, can they, is this person creating a bad karma for herself? Of course they are, yeah. <laughs> Yes, they are creating bad karma. And does karma take care of itself? Do they, do they end up paying for it? Like, a, like I don't act, toward, I know the person that is doing this to me, and I don't do anything to the person. I just let karma take care of itself. Yes, they're doing it because of their past bad karma, and by continuing to do it, they're creating more bad karma for themselves in the future. Okay. But understanding karma in the terms that we're talking about here, we're meaning that what they're doing in their aggregate of mental formations is they are storing up a lot of very unwholesome mental formations which are going to backfire on them in other situations sooner or later. How, how do you control this kind of a person that, that, that does this to you? So, like you were saying earlier, uh, that you sort of change, you sort of um, send something positive to them, you know, like, so they can come down a little bit, yeah. because... Well, ha uh, skillful means refers to our ability to help other people to uh, understand, overcome ignorance, be wiser, uh, and it takes a lot of time to develop the skill. The most important thing is you work on yourself. You work on your own reactions to what somebody else says or does to you. You work on creating the good karma in yourself. As your own wisdom develops, at some point, you will have enough wisdom that you'll be in, able to uh, uh, engage in skillful means to help people. And if you try to help somebody and it doesn't work, then it just means that you, you need to acquire some more wisdom first. But you don't need to uh, you don't need to be attached to the idea that you're going to necessarily be able to help every person that you would like to help. Right. You 
you say the best thing that you can. Mostly, though, mostly you, you attend to your own feelings, your own reactions. Make sure you have an ad, if you have an attitude of compassion towards them, then no matter what you say and do, it's going to be better than if you didn't. Even if it doesn't produce the result you desire. Anything else? Uh, okay, so whatever the self is now, it's now become a composite, right? A collection, a huge collection. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just think I just thought about uh, for her example, uh, you, 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 uh, somebody constantly do something bad to her, and those those bad people create their own karma, and but she she has. Uh, uh, result for a bad result for that people, and is that also her karma? <laughs> well, it there are there are different levels that we can talk about this. And this is you know when we talk about dharma, we're talking about We're talking about reality, both relative and ultimate. And it's a huge thing, uh, many, many layers to the onion. So at the level of karma that we're talking about here, the way that she feels and what she experiences when the person does whatever they do to her, that is her karma. That's her past karma. You see, that person could say the same thing to two different people and it would make one person miserable and the other person might laugh at it because those two people have different karma. How you, how you experience whatever happens to you, that is your karma. The perception you have, if your perception is this is a terrible thing and if it makes you feel terrible in turn, that's your karma. If, it, if your only reaction is to feel uh, compassion, maybe a little amused, and not really bothered by it, that's your karma. And right now, that's what you want to do, is you want to change your karma, she wants to change her karma, from feeling unhappy and upset when the person does what they do, to having the karma to feel compassion and, and not bothered by it. There is another level, this gets, we, uh, I think this clock speeds up when I come in to talk tonight. You can start with the clock. Yeah, there's an easy solution. Yeah, there's an easy solution. There is a level at which we are all interconnected, you know, and so, um, At this, at this level of profound interconnectedness, uh, if we were able to trace all the paths of the, of the five different kinds of causality, we'd find that having this person in her life is also a karmic result. But, but we can't get into the details of that tonight. Yeah, I, I know that. <laughs> We did get as far, though, as talking, that, that is beginning to get towards this other, we, 
we have talked about the self as being unitary and the self as being sort of uh, in, enduring and we've seen that it is neither enduring in any sense of being unchanging, in fact it's constantly changing, moment by moment, every new experience and every new intention you have changes who you are. So you don't have an enduring self, you've got a, a self that is in constant flux. And uh, so likewise, it's not unitary, it's not one thing you can point to as a self, that yourself has many different there's many different mental processes that make up your mind and that make up this aspect of self. So, so everything we spoke about today is still falls within the mind formation. It falls primarily into the mental formation. We did speak of perceptions and feelings are a part of it. So, yeah. So we can continue, you know, uh, we can continue to go into it from different directions and in different depths as we well, go this, along with this. This mental formation is a huge, like, 50 ton whale, you know, there's yes. so many things in it. That's right, yes. Yeah, and I think that a lot of self, the uh, identify the self, we come from this category of mental formation. Yes, it does. Yeah. That's right. So I, I told you the self was an illusion. I didn't say that you don't exist, but the self that you think you are isn't the way you think it is. It's these mental formations. Your your self is is your is your karma, really. It's the karma you make, and it's the karma you've accumulated, and it's the karma you make is more of yourself. But still, there are other senses. There are other senses of the word self that we have to clarify. We still left with this feeling that, oh my goodness, it's my mental formations. It is this separate mass of mental formations that is, you know, can't I just unload these and get a new set somewhere else? Wait a minute, who would get the new set? Whoever got the old one, that would be me. Oh, and the new set, that would be somebody else. So, I can't even get rid of them. <laughs> I have them. Make them. So we got a little further to go with this investigation. Is, is this is this being helpful to you though? Yeah, helpful. Yeah. Good. Okay. So, little little bit more of an idea of what we mean by not self. A little bit more of an idea of what we mean by impermanence. Um, and a uh, little bit better idea of what we mean by karma.